Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Two things about breast cancer. The women who did not need to use progestin to protect their uterus because they'd had a hysterectomy had lower rates of breast cancer, lower rates of breast cancer. Okay, so... You explained to me how estrogen is causing breast cancer. It's not. There are receptors in the cancer. That doesn't mean that thing that there's a receptor for caused the cancer. There are estrogen receptors in brain cancer. I don't hear anybody screaming about menopausal hormone therapy and brain cancer. It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health, and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hello, my Bettys, and welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, as always, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I am bringing you a fabulous conversation all about menopause. My guest today is Dr. Suzanne Gilbert-Lenz. She is a diplomat of the American Colleges of, of Obstetrics and Gynecology. She received her medical degree in 1996 from USC School of Medicine and completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology at the UCLA Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. Dr. Gilbert-Lenz is involved in women's empowerment and public education. She appears frequently as an expert in women's health and integrative medicine in print, online and on TV, where she is the chief medical correspondent for the Drew Barrymore Show. She's the author of the Menopause Bootcamp, Optimizing Your Health, Empower Yourself, and Flourish as You Age. And you might have guessed, we are talking all about the progress or the portal from perimenopause into menopause. We talk a lot about the hormones that change. So we talk about the clinical indicators of menopause. We talk about FSH and LH. We talk about other hormones like thyroid. We talk about the grandmother theory of evolution. We talk about some of the other changes in menopause, like incontinence. We talk about estrogen changes and how that might impact uh, incontinence, how that might impact sexual function, how that might impact vasomotor disturbances. And we talk about so much more. We talk about bioidentical hormones. And she's the first guest that I actually had the opportunity to speak to about testosterone replacement therapy, which is extremely controversial for females. And we have a robust conversation around the different types of hormonal therapies that one might explore and why you might explore it, including on-label and off-label uses. I really feel like you are going to get so much value from this. Please share this episode far and wide. So if this is something that is impacting you or a woman that you love, please share this episode with her. And just before we get to the show, I do want to just read a beautiful review that came in 
And this is from Fancy Fun Girl. What a fun handle. In the United States of America, she said, this silky smooth voice doctor brings some of the best guests and information regarding health and wellness to the podcasting world. She's not shy about getting deep and geeky with her topics, which while women focus are relatable to all of us. Thank you, Dr. Stephanie, for your commitment to sharing with your audience. Well, thank you for taking the time to make a review. If you, my dear Betty, are finding value from this podcast, please rate it and review it on iTunes. Put a, put a comment in Spotify. We see all the comments. We see everything. Watch us on YouTube. Make a comment on YouTube. It helps other people find the information that they so desperately need and then can take informed action. All right. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Gilbert Lenz. Hey, Bettys. I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break, so you can hear a word from our sponsors. One of the biggest complaints that I hear from my beautiful perimenopausal and menopausal women is disrupted sleep, either in the initiation of sleep or trouble staying asleep through the night. Qualia Night is a different kind of sleep support. You actually take it at dinner time and it doesn't make you drowsy. It helps your nervous system naturally wind down in the evening like we used to before we all had smartphones. Imagine that, right? So when I take it, I start to feel calmer. I'm not groggy, but I'm looking forward to bedtime when it's time to sleep and I'm getting deep sleep again. I'm waking up feeling recharged and refreshed every morning, ready to take on the day. I want you, my Bettys, to start sleeping better as well so that you can show up in your lives in all the verticals that matter with great energy. If you go to neurohacker.com forward slash estima15 and use code estima15 at checkout to get 15% off of your purchase. That's neurohacker, N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com slash E-S-T-I-M-A and the numbers one and five. And it's good for 15% off of your any purchase in the store. In today's fast-paced world, finding time to exercise can be a challenge. I know as a mother, I certainly struggle with this between prepping and making breakfast and lunch and dinner and then the extracurricular activities for my kids, not to mention all the other commitments that I have at work and to my husband and my life. It feels like my schedule is always pretty crammed, but there is a way to achieve remarkable health and fitness benefits in a fraction of the time. This has been my latest and my greatest discovery with cardio, and it is the Carol Bike. The Carol Bike gives you the shortest, most effective workouts proven to deliver double the health and fitness benefits in 90% less time compared to regular cardio. No more hamster on the wheel, ladies, for for 50 minutes or an hour. In just six minutes, you will get the most effective workout that fits seamlessly into your busy life. The coolest thing about the Carol Bike is that it is AI driven, so it gives you custom workouts based on your fitness level. And trust me, you are just done after that six minutes of work. I love it. So for a limited time, you can get $100 off the Carol Bike with the promo code BETTER. That's B-E-T-T-E-R. That's right. You can save money and time with the Carol Bike. So please don't wait. Visit carolbike.com today. Dr. Gilbert Lenz, I am delighted to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Dr. Stephanie. I am so happy to be here finally. Yes, I was saying to you in the pre-chat, you are worth waiting for, so we'll make sure that that is in the recording. I'm happy to <laughs> happy to wait for quality guests as you're you know sorting out your schedule and, and what have you. So 
We are going to have such a wonderful conversation today about menopause, the perimenopausal transition, but we're going to kind of double down and double click, if you will, on menopause and some of the some of the changes that we can expect. And then, and of course, you know, like every, it's so hard to say this is exactly what's going to happen because every woman's experience is so bio-individual. But one of the things that I think of as a coach and as an educator is let's just lay it all out. Here's all the possibilities that might happen so that you don't misinterpret your experience once you get there. So you don't think that you're crazy. So you don't think that this is a part of aging or, you know, this is just your destiny so that you can understand and identify some of these symptoms so that maybe you can communicate them well to your primary healthcare provider. Maybe you can get some solutions that, you know, through bringing some of these topics up, you can get some solutions that are going to help you with this transition. So uh, and then I also want to talk about some good things because there's some really good things about menopause. I think there's you know. so many good things about <laughs> menopause. And anybody yeah. who's who's following me knows that I, I let's just say this at the outset. Like I'm excited to get like down and dirty with you. That's one of the things that I love about your podcast and how granular you get. But I also, frankly, as as the dust starts to settle a little bit in this world, what I'm starting to see about myself is what I always have been, which is that. I am like a big picture sinker. And one of my big messages here is that the narrative that we have been delivered about us is something that has been delivered to us from outside sources. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that does not mean that is our story. So I'm not here to be toxically positive, Stephanie, and say like everything that's about to happen is going to be super fun because that is absurd. However, what, what valuable thing or challenge in life or transition in life does not also include challenge. So it's about resilience because what happens when you get to the other side, I can tell you because I recently arrived in menopause land. I recently completed, I thank you. I had a little party. I recently made, I can't tell you how great it is. It's so great. It's so great. So don't despair folks. (laughs) You know what? Let's, can we just stay, let's just stay there for a moment because you just said I had a party. And I was telling you in the pre-chat, I just was talking to Dr. Moscone uh, a couple weeks ago. And one of the things that she said, and this is going to be in a podcast that's going to be released after this one, but she was saying, you know, at every moment in a woman's life, you know, puberty, pregnancy, you know, there's a big party, right? There's a baby shower for the pregnancy. There's puberty. She was like, "When when I got my period, like my mom got me a gift. And she's like, but there's nothing for menopause. It's just like... There you go. You're <laughs> aging. Yeah. Wah, wah. Exactly. So I actually love, adore that yeah. you had a party. I think that this is a milestone in a woman's life yeah. that yeah. should be celebrated. It is aging is a privilege. Not everybody Absolutely. gets it. Absolutely. That is yes. exactly right. And it's not just like, oh my God, there's so much to unpack, right? Because you also have arrived, and I think for us to feel like we have arrived at a substantial part of our life, by the way, if you look at the averages, right, the average age of menopause in North American women is like 51.4. That's a third to a half of your life that you're going to be spending in this period of time. So to pack that away as if now it's over is really bizarre. Like what that makes no sense. Yeah, just but pack let's say, it up. <laughs> okay, you're done. Up. Bye. Done. Yeah. Get back in the closet. We're done with you. Yeah. It's just not accurate and it doesn't mean need to be accurate. So I agree. Celebrating the wins and celebrating what's coming next, which is a lot of creativity is what I have found. 
a lot of autonomy and freedom, a lot of connecting with my own intuition and really having had enough time on the planet and enough feedback to, to see that going with my intuition really is the best way to go all the time. You know, that wisdom, it's wisdom, the wisdom of the elders. And let's stop looking at elderhood as a bad thing. Like you said, it's a privilege to still be alive, but it's not about just still being alive and like clinging and hanging on. I'm still there. It's about like celebrating all of the things that got you here and how much you have to offer, how much you have to offer. And people are listening to me now even more than they ever did before. Some of that is timing, you know, the universal timing. I just happened to have a lot to say at a time when people were like, hey, maybe we should start listening to older women, you know. But some of it, I think, is just my own self-confidence. I think like, I have something to say, you know. I love I love that. And I think that there's something with that confidence. There's a, we'll say, an unhitching or, you know, from other people's opinion. You're just like, I don't yes. care. This is what it is. And I'm going to say yes. it. And yep. I think that that individual who cares less about other people's opinions is a truly free one. You yep. know, and, I, and I feel like that portal or that transition into menopause with the lived experience that you've had is an opportunity for you to unshackle yourself, let's say, from the societal pressures of always looking a certain way, being a certain way, everyone's smiling all the time. How are you? I'm fine. You know, Um, even though you might be suffering or something's happening that you Mm -hmm. really need to connect with another human about. So I think that there's a, and to be honest, like, let's just call a spade a spade. I think that that scares people. I think that a free woman, a free thinking woman who gives zero Fs about what other people think. I think that that is one of the scariest things on the planet. And you actually see it on social media. People that speak there, just speak up. They are trolled. They're doxxed. They're, you know, tried to cancel them, all the things. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why witches were burned at stake. I mean, we right. could really get deep about this. The other thing about it that I have actually found, which has been very interesting for me, is that I actually feel softened in a lot of ways, too. Hmm. I, and I, I ha- I'm just starting to really explore this myself. But I find that I am able to be out in the world, and I am very much out in the world, but really connect to my heart a lot. I mean, I always was a very heart-centered person, mm-hmm. but I, I think something you said really, really resonated, you know, that uncoupling and not really being so concerned what I think other people are thinking, newsflash, they're not thinking about me. They're thinking about themselves. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, that's the other thing. Yeah, that's the other thing. They're no one's actually not thinking, thinking about, about me. They're, okay, so whatever. But yeah. I also feel less like pressure. I'm, I'm an intense person. Like I'm a very passionate person. I'm an intense person. Yeah. You know, I didn't do attend births and do surgery for because I'm like super chill. Like I would like to think I'm chill. I'm probably not that chill. However, I find that I've been able to sort of channel that passion and intensity into this like much more expansive, loving, softer way. And and I'm finding that that's just, I mean, I've always known this, but that's a much more effective tool for me for communication because there's a big difference. I feel like sometimes when we say no Fs to give, which I, is a, I love that. And there's the whole like 50s, no Fs to give situation, which is, I think, absolutely accurate. But sometimes I can read as harsh, which is, I don't think is necessarily what it's meant as. Right. Yes. And I don't want to play into like female stereotypes. 
too much here in gender role stuff. But for me, I find myself just softening and relaxing. And then the message is received even more readily because people are like drawn to that, that love and that receptiveness. It is, I, I don't know, whatever. It's endlessly interesting. I feel like each day there's a new revelation in a really cool, positive way. It's, I couldn't be more thrilled to be almost 58. Wow. I am, I have to say, I'm so drawn to that because I, I for one of the things I've constantly struggled with, I've been very open with this on the show, is just leaning into what I think you're saying, and I'll put a label on it, it might not be right, and redirect me if I'm if I'm off here, is like leaning into that feminine, that, yes. sort of, that feminine energy. And this is yes. not sex, it's like chromosomal agnostic, but we're just talking no, about- No, it's like, energy. Yeah. yeah. That feminine yeah. softness where you're just coming from, there's no, yep. there's nothing underneath it. So that zero Fs to give- Sometimes I agree with you. It can come across as like F you because I've been really, really hurt before. So now I've built a wall around my heart and I've built mm-hmm. a wall around myself. So no one's going to ever do that again. That's not, I think that people can also sort of read that, but that softness that you're talking about, that gentleness or that just expansive love yeah. and that stillness, I think is, I think what you're, I think what you're tapping into, which is something that I am myself personally, just very drawn into because I've always, you know, like you, very driven, very accolade. You know, I sort of measured my worth based on how many Mm -hmm. letters were behind my name and how many courses I've taken and all the things. But I do think that there's something very special about unhitching your worth from the external, whatever it is, the, you know, into the ether and, you know, into the black hole of what, you know, culture decides a woman should be. Yeah. Just love, just love, love, love that. And I think we'll probably have an offline conversation about that or maybe oh, yeah, we'll have an, another I podcast really, about it. I know totally. Cause I feel like we need to, we need to talk about these things. We need to support one another. Yeah. And I think probably one of the reasons that I've been drawn to you is that, you know, I see a lot of myself in some of the women and the colleagues that I have met in the, you know, online and and through social media and through podcasting and honestly through the pandemic. And, you know, like I can speak for myself, like I have a lot of male energy, which is where I, how I got where I am today. Like I am a very ambitious person. I am very driven, but I'm a human being. There is, there is more, there are a lot of energies in me and I'm finding this just really sweet spot for myself of like, yeah, settling much more into my feminine and being, I think, less threatened by what I think people are thinking about me in that way. Like, am I being too much? Am I being this? Am I being that? I think, you know, spend anybody who's successful out in the wider world as a woman, as a female bodied person has experienced a lot of pushback for being in their masculine well, at the same time, we are asked to do that in order to, quote, succeed. Right. And there's just so much back and forth about being sexy, being feminine, being soft, being a mom, blah, 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 all those things. And it's like confusing. And again, it gets back to like, just not attending to that anymore. Maybe it's just exhaustion too. Maybe I'm just like, oh, it's like, I'm, <laughs> I'm over, I'm anymore. over it. I'm tired. Yeah. I'm tired. <laughs> well, it does seem like it's a, mo- it can seem like it's a moving target, right? It's like be sexy, but not too sexy. There was this monologue in the Barbie movie. I don't know if you saw it. It was, a man- I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. Amer- America Ferreira's monologue. I actually have it on my phone and it's like, be sexy, but not too sexy. Be happy, but not too happy. It's like all of these, like, what's the sweet spot? It's very difficult. Yep. It can often seem like a moving target. All right. So let's, let's actually dive into 
First, maybe just as an overarching definition for our for our listeners, let's talk about the definition of menopause. It is a retroactive one, and we'll certainly talk about estrogen and some of the changes there, but I also wanted to explore some of the other hormones as well that change in, you know, in the perimenopausal phase for sure, but certainly in menopause as well. So let's define menopause and let's talk about some of the hormones that change uh, during that time. I love giving the definitions. This is actually why I created menopause boot camps, why I wrote the book. And I have a certification program, by the way, for people who want to run their own boot camps, Hmm. because the first thing that I noticed was that people just, we weren't speaking the same language. People did not understand what these definitions are. And I think what's happening is wonderful out there. We're all talking about menopause now, but the terminology is confusing to people. So in fact, menopause itself is one day. It's the day that you reach 12 consecutive months without a menstrual bleed. And that's obviously complex for some people, right? You know, you might've had chemo or a hysterectomy or an IUD, but in the average person, no bleeds for 12 months consecutively between the ages of 45 and 55. So that's the quote, normal ages of menopause. 45 is on the young side, but it is considered normal. As I mentioned earlier, 51.4, about 52 is the average age of menopause. I'm actually starting to see in my own practice women um, going into menopause later. That'll be an interesting thing for people to look at in the future. And now that in the United States, we're going to have a big funding initiative, which is amazing for women's health. It just got signed this week. Maybe we'll learn more about this, but that's it. That's the definition. It's that really that one day that you get to the end of that 12 months. Now, the, here's the thing. Perimenopause, peri is just the Latin medicine. We like to use Latin. Peri is the term for the time surrounding or leading up to. Perimenopause can last five to 10 years or more leading up to that. And I make the joke all the time. If you're a menopause expert, everything is perimenopause. Everything is leading to (laughs) menopause because it's a very fuzzy term like perimenopause, menopausal transition, menopause. I think these terms are all being used interchangeably. So if your audience is a little confused, uh, they're coming by that honestly. And it's okay when you see a lot of information out there, when you see the term menopause, I think often they're more talking about the transition, you know, and not just that event. And as you mentioned, it's retrospective. Yeah, Exactly. You don't know you're there till you're there. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, how many people have you had or I had who come in and thinking they were there and then, you know, six months in they get their period. Right. Right. So they're, they're just not done with that transition. They're in the, the phase though. And it's a developmental phase. It's the puberty of middle life. It's not a disease. It's physiologic. It's pre-programmed. Our bodies are designed to do this. For what purpose? There's controversy around what that might mean. But our bodies are supposed to do this. This is not a disease. It is not an imbalance. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't get to feel however you feel because you are changing physically, mentally, and emotionally as a result of the hormone changes that are driving all of this. And you're, you're different in your body and it does not feel comfortable or pleasant. And it increases your risk for various health conditions, mental health changes, weight changes, uh, emotional changes, brain changes. There are estrogen receptors in every single tissue in your body. So you are being affected, but we, we can unpack and talk about how to feel better and how to work around those things. Um, but I, I really, it's so important to me to emphasize that this is not a disease. It is not a disease. And I think that the, 
I love that you're saying that. I think it is important because we do often in women's health specifically, everything is looked at as, you know, we, well, we should cut it off, cut it out or, you know, give the person, they're having a mental, they're having some depressive, let's just give them a lobotomy that might help, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. I I, I say that tongue in cheek because it was not that long ago. It was, you know, last century where if you presented with persistent, you know, episodes or, you know, clinical signs of depression or any type of mood affect, one of the, one of the possible treatments that you might receive would be a lobotomy. I haven't looked at this historically, but I bet if you looked at who this was happening to, it was women, probably postpartum, early parenthood and perimenopause. I bet you anything. And maybe, maybe at any other time there was a hormonal fluctuation, maybe younger women and, you know, late adolescence or stuff, which is tragic. It's just a tragic mis, uh, interpretation. And it's, you know, obviously misogyny, but, but, you know, but yeah. We could do a whole podcast on that. Yeah, we too, could also go down that rab- rabbit hole as well. <laughs> because you would we'll never, talk about it another time. Yeah. I mean, imagine yeah. imagine the the pushback you would get if you went to a man and said, "You know what? We're going to have to cut off your testes." I mean, that's the only way to cure your mood, or you know, like even the word. If you want to, I mean, we okay, we won't get into this, but I will just say <laughs> the word hysteria. The word if you if someone says you're being hysterical, yep. literally comes from the word or the origin is uterus, which means wandering uterus. So your uterus is making you bananas. Yep. I mean, sit down. Okay. So let's (laughs) just, you know, stop. Okay. Let's talk, let's talk about hormones. So I, you know, we'll talk about estrogen in a moment, but I actually wanted to start with, and we can start in the perimenopausal time, but let's talk about FSH and LH because I feel like estrogen is the popular girl at the party. We get all, she gets all the attention, which she should, we, you know, it can help with a lot of things. And we'll talk about HRT today too, but there are some other, we'll say subtle and sometimes not so subtle clinical indicators that we are starting to move into that we're moving towards at a quicker rate menopause. So can you talk a little bit about luteinizing hormone and higher FSH levels as well. So here's the thing. This is really important. And again, this is a matter of people understanding the language of medicine and science. So follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone are actually the hormones that are made in, there's the signaling hormones in your brain. They are made in your anterior, anterior pituitary gland, and they are the directors that are talking to your ovaries. So the ovaries are largely where estrogen is made elsewhere, but most of the estrogen in your body is coming from your ovaries, as is progesterone. And I think, I wish, you know, I'm sure you immediately as a healthcare professional have, we have a crazy chart in our brains of the sex steroid hormone pathway, which I feel like if people could look at this, they would understand how complicated it is. And it is complicated. And that's why you but can't com- just take one supplement. <laughs> right. It's not just like, well, the one or supplement. not under, you have to understand exactly. There isn't a one thing to do. And as you mentioned, you started the podcast talking about, we don't all have exactly the same experience, but in yes. general, so, so the com- this is the way I, I explain it to my patients. There is a conversation constantly between, in your whole body, hormones are just chemical messengers and hormones are not just estrogen and progesterone and testosterone. I mean, insulin is a hormone. Thyroid is a hormone. Vitamin D is a pro-hormone. So this is a way that your body talks to itself. So the FSH and the LH are talking to your ovary. And in a younger, in a reproductive age person, while you're menstruating, the FSH is directing the ovary to help choose an area, which is going to what's called a follicle, where the estrogen is going to be developed and an egg will be chosen to ovulate. So you're going to, and there's a buildup, okay? I mean, 
it's actually a beautiful orchestration. The FSH is talking, talking, talking. The estrogen is developing. When it gets to a certain point, it switches the conversation. LH takes over. I mean, I'm simplifying this. And now progesterone is made in order to support pregnancy should this egg that was released, ovulated, join with a sperm. When you get to a certain point, a certain amount of time passes, nothing happened, everything drops off. The lining of your uterus, which was developed over time in orchestration with the estrogen and progesterone, also drops off. You menstruate, the whole thing starts over. What happens in perimenopause, and this can start in your 30s, actually, is there's a little bit, the regulation changes. It's a little bit less erratic. The orchestration is not quite as smooth and the conversation changes. So when the FS, when the, when the brain whispers at the ovary to do its thing, it's very quiet and smooth. Then it starts like, Hey, Hey, I'm talking to you. You know, then it's screaming. So the FSH level, level will start to rise over time during that early part of the cycle. It's one of the ways we know about fertility because we know that when the FSH level, the brain to ovary part of the conversation gets past a certain number, fertility is much less likely to be uh, smooth going, right? Here's, this is very important because in, in my world, look, there's a lot of really interesting theoretical stuff. There's a lot of interesting research done in animals, interesting research done in the lab. Clinically, this is very hard to prove. We don't know always what the normal levels are at all of the different points in your cycle. And I understand that a lot of my colleagues are doing a lot of testing at various times of the cycle and looking at FSH and LH and, and the precursor hormones, you know, pregnenolone and all these other things. The reality is that we don't always know clinically what these things are going to mean. What am I saying, Stephanie? It's not like we know when your estrogen falls below this and your progesterone is above that or your FSH or your LH is at a specific level, you're going to have a hot flash or you're going to have a mood change or your sleep will be disrupted. It's really important for your listeners to know if they're doing this testing, it's fine. It's interesting. I think there are things that can be done with it. And I think there are specific cases like understanding what pathway metabolically your estrogen is moving into because some estrogen forms are more healthy, some are more inflammatory, some are more cancer producing. I think these can be important. But I think if everybody's out there doing a lot of really fancy testing, beware, because that isn't necessarily going to guide the clinical management of your symptoms. And as i backing it up, this is not a disease. So what we're looking at here when we are talking about treating and supporting you is how can we treat and support you? What are the symptoms that are bothering you? What are the side effects you are having as a result of your normal natural process? And then providing those solutions that can be anything from lifestyle, diet, stress management, hormones, supplements, vitamins, minerals, eating differently, exercise. These things can all be plugged in to support you clinically, but it is not an algorithm that is set in stone. And people get really confused about that. So, so I mean, I, I went really far with this, but there are a lot of other hormones. You're 100% right. And I think specifically talking about this is very important because people don't understand how their brain is influencing their ovaries. Like this is, this is where it's coming from. Why does it disconnect? I, we don't know. We don't know why that happens. We really don't. Yeah. And I think that there's, you know, some, 
we'll call it, we'll just say male evolutionary biologists as they, well, you know, once you've reproduced, you've basically lived out your term here. Like we don't care for you to be like, you know, there's no reason for you to be around. There's no, so I would, I would disagree with that insofar as sure. We don't want to be pregnant. Like at some point, you know, when you're 60, you don't want to be caring for a newborn anymore. At least, I mean, maybe as a grandmother, maybe, maybe you want to be, you know, caring for your children's children because you can hand them back at the end of the day and you don't have to have all the sleep deprivation. Well, but you know, along with it. But the developmental and evolutionary biology community has, this is controversial, right? But there is an idea of something called the grandmother effect. Yes. And there are specific species, right? So we know that certain orcas and a couple of other uh, whale species, now it turns out giraffes. Giraffes. And now it turns out there was recent data showing that chimpanzees seem to do this as well, a specific kind of chimpanzee. So the the idea here is that we are pre-programmed to stop reproducing because we are valuable to the survival of the species as an older female who is devoting resources not to our own bodies carrying a pregnancy and then caring for that newborn, keeping it alive with breast milk and all that. But now our resources are diverted to the tribe um, or the pack or the herd or whatever it is. You know, it's hard to prove these things, and but it's very, very interesting uh, and appealing because, because the resources are limited, right? We can only do so many things. And then the other thing is that the burden of maternity is very, very high. You know, females in other species and in our species died routinely in childbirth, you know? So, you know, it's, it's interesting. There, there, so why did some species seem to develop this inborn process to stop reproducing? Yes, perhaps it is for the survival benefit to the rest of the community. I mean, it's it's pretty interesting. But I mean, why did why do we have to pod flashes to do that? I don't understand that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I love that you're saying this because you don't, you know, I think what you're saying and what this sort of grandmother theory is is exploring is that you maybe you're not reproductive, but you're still very productive. Like you are still absolutely very much contributing to the community. You're helping the mother who needs to be at home tending so you can go out and forage the leaves, let's say, not the leaves, but you know, the berries and the food and you can support the mom. She can take a nap while you're playing with the baby, you know, that kind of thing. So I I do think that that I I too share, well, I share some joy in it because I think that there's, we've heard for, I mean, I've, at least I've heard sort of forever the messaging that it's, well, you know, it's just like a modern fluke. It's just like modern medicine's fluke that women are still around after menopause because you've basically, you know, you've utilized like all of your utility is now you've used it all up, right? It's like if you're in a game, you've used up all your hearts. It's time to die, you know? Right, <laughs> so, right. Uh, and I, I do really appreciate this because I, I grew up with my grandmother and my I would stay with my grandmother over the summer. My my mother and my father, they would go traveling and I would be with, I would spend, you know, with my maternal grandmother and then my, my paternal grandmother, we would spend the entire summer with them. And I, I remember those, you know, they're not, no longer here, but I, I reflect and sometimes I, I still talk to my grandparents. Like I still talk to yeah. my grandmothers, you know, I still ask them for advice and what would my, you know, my, my grandmother, I would call her Sito, my Lebanese grandma. I said, well, what would my Sito do right here? Because she was some, like she was a hero, heroine to me and partly raised me. So yeah, yeah there's and something. And that's also that's also the the beauty of the intergenerational experience. I mean, I'm sure you learned all sorts of like stories of the family, recipes, yeah. whatever, like stuff that your mom wouldn't have told you, or your dad wouldn't have told you, or didn't even know. Yeah, I've been talking to my dad recently. He was in a like 
not the same situation at all, but he was raised largely by his grand. I mean, he lived with his parents, but he was had a very, very close relationship with his grandparents. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the family lore and a lot of the stories from like the old country and stuff like that that I know are actually through them, not through my grandparents, but mm-hmm. through my great grandparents because they shared with my dad because my dad mm-hmm. was a little boy and would go to their house like every day after school. Right. Right. So, so to that point, I mean, here's one of the things that is interesting. And I think we're starting to see, I know I'm very interested in promoting this, but restoring that conversation when it comes to our bodies, because I know that younger women are really thirsty for this information. And I'm actually having a lot of really wonderful conversations right now with younger women who have an online presence, for instance, who want to, we want to have a conversation so that we're educating each other about each other. And also that replacement conversation, because maybe their mom or their grandma didn't, was ashamed or didn't really talk about menopause or didn't know about menopause. And there's so much shame packed into this about an aging female body that the, the joy of this and the tricks to get through it and the solutions weren't shared. And I'm really, really excited about having that conversation. I didn't have a conversation with my own mother about menopause until I was in my 50s because I was still getting my period. And my mom had had a hysterectomy in her 40s for fibroids, like classic 80s stuff, right? Mm -hmm. That was it. And they took her ovaries out, which was a disaster, by the way. Well, we're here anyway. Might as well take these Take yep. these bad boys out. Yeah. She was like 45 or something terrible. So I didn't know. And here I am like a menopause expert. And I never had the conversation. And I asked my mom, because I was like, why am I still getting my period? And she said, oh, but your grandma E, her mother, she had her period until she was like 55. I literally, Stephanie had never heard this story before. Mm-hmm. She was like, you know, well, this is very much my mom too. I said, wait, wait. She said, you never asked. <laughs> so... <laughs> You never asked. And coming back to your point, we were talking about FSH for a moment. I feel like I feel like you and I we just have to have a coffee because we're gonna have just the best conversation. So I'll try my best to sort of keep us on on task here. Yes. To your to your point about the bio individuality. So sometimes if you let's say if you look at an FSH level that's above 30 or 40, most people would say, Okay, that's ovarian failure, that's signaling menopause. But many women I've I've cared for. I've, I've I've had many women who still can get their periods with an FSH level that high. Um, Absolutely, I'm so glad you brought that up specifically because I have this done all the time too. People come to me. My doctor did my hormones, and he told me I'm in menopause, or she told me I'm in menopause, and I was like, okay, first of all, why are they doing that? I mean, there again, if you have an IUD that makes you not have a period anymore, it can be confusing, especially if you're in this age range we discussed, yeah. and you're having symptoms, right? Because in perimenopause, you have all these symptoms that are, you know, classic menopausal symptoms. Again, getting back to terminology, when we're talking about menopausal symptoms, they're not just like on the day you go into menopause, they're leading up. It could be a decade of these hot flashes before your cycle, a PMS that's not two days, but 14 days, your cycle is being irregular. Okay. So you imagine that without a bleed, you don't know what the hell is going on. So right. it's not necessarily wrong to get hormone levels, but it's not the be all and end all. And when I have a patient who is menstruating and has a uterus that is functioning in that way, I don't even understand, why are you testing these hormones? If the person is coming into you with all of the laundry list of symptoms, let's make sure it's not her thyroid. Let's make sure she doesn't have an autoimmune disorder that is developing. Let's make sure she doesn't have anxiety or depression that is actually because her life is a mess, you know, whatever. And she's unsupported and she's burnt out. Let's make sure there isn't an injury. You know, everything isn't hormonal and everything isn't menopause. but 
you're not going to diagnose menopause that way. Menopause is a clinical diagnosis, 12 months consecutively without the period. And we're going to treat you for your symptoms regardless of where you are. So thank you for bringing that up. An FSH of 25 or 30 puts you in the perimenopausal range. There could be other things going on, you know, that, that could cause that. But you're, you're not, you're, your numbers are going to be all over the place leading up to menopause. It's a snapshot. When you do those labs, you're giving yourself a snapshot of that day. Your FSH and your estradiol are moving around. If we're just going to talk about those two mm-hmm. all day, every day. I don't, it, when you're 32 and you're regularly cycle, cycling, I can give you more of a prediction of where you are in your cycle. But, you know, in your late thirties, early forties, mid forties, it doesn't tell me anything. And it certainly doesn't tell me that you're not fertile. Also, I'm going to tell you something. Every day of the week, because I do this all the time, I have patients in their late 40s having a lot of symptoms coming to me for the menopausal transition. It needs to be treated. It deserves to be treated. However, to a person, they can't believe that I tell them that they need to have a birth control method if they are having penetrative sex with a penis. What? Come on, Suzanne. I'm going to tell you right now, I had a patient at 49 get pregnant unplanned this month, Okay. And does it happen all the time? No. Does it happen? Yep, it happens. To, so to your point, you could still ovulate and conceive with an FSH of 35. You know, so are you going to test somebody every day for a year? Please don't. <laughs> Please it. don't. First of all, that would be financially, you know, beyond the scope of, of most individuals. And also just the commitment. I mean, what, you know, we, I think I, I do really resonate with your approach here because there can be people that just look at labs, right? They were yeah. just looking yeah. at the labs for like, do you check the box or do you not? And that's really not you know, even, gosh, even the term woman, it's like, how old, What? what's the ethnic background? What's the age? What's the, I mean, that mm-hmm. term it's in and of itself can sort of yeah. be um, ill-defined. You mentioned um, thyroid, and I thought we might touch on this briefly because it does, I mean, we know this, this the data is very clear that women are much more predisposed, to, and you mentioned autoimmunity, so I want to bring up Hashimoto's thyroiditis, yeah. thyroiditis yeah. and also just hypothyroid function, which is at least in my clinical estimation, just a mild form of Hashimoto's. If you're hypothyroid, you have some autoimmunity stuff happening. Hey, Bettys, I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break, so you can hear a word from our sponsors. I'm in my mid-40s, and I have never felt more energized. I am training five times a week. I'm getting in three bike rides every single week. I recently reached a personal best of 15 neutral grip pull-ups, and I could have literally done it the next day if I wanted to. And I wanted to share with you what I've been doing that is making me feel so great. One of the cornerstones of my daily health regimen is Timeline Nutrition's MitoPure. MitoPure captures a pure form of the molecule urolithin A. This is a postbiotic nutrient that re-energizes your mitochondria, which are the cells that are responsible for making energy and widely considered a cornerstone of longevity. Research has also shown that individuals supplementing with urolithin A experience an increase in muscle strength and endurance without altering their diet or exercise routines, which is why I probably got the 15 PB, the personal best. I recorded a podcast with Dr. Anurag Singh, the scientist who discovered urolithin A, and after our conversation, I started taking it as a recovery tool after my weightlifting sessions. 
I take it as a supplement, but it also comes in powder form, which is really great for travel. And they've also now combined it with a protein powder. So you can kind of get the two for one deal there. And I've also been using their skincare line, which helps with the skin's collagen and elastin matrix, making the skin look plump and juicy and helping reduce the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles. Right now, Timeline Nutrition is offering my Bettys 10% off at TimelineNutrition.com forward slash better. That's T-I-M-E-L-I-N-E-N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R. Use code better to get 10% off. What is the, uh, I don't use any sort of disparaging language, but we are a bit more susceptible to thyroid dysfunction yeah. I I've noticed like multi-paris women. So the more children you have, it seems like in that 40, 50 kind of time, you know, when you're 40 or 50 years of age, you seem to be a bit more susceptible to thyroid dysfunction. Can you speak yeah. a little bit about clinical observations with thyroid, what you might be looking for in terms of symptoms that might not, you know, you said maybe it's not just perimenopause, maybe it's not just menopause, maybe it's our thyroid that is starting to get a little wonky. Speak a little bit yeah. about that if you would. Yeah. And I mean, this is not my expertise, but I definitely, because I look at thyroid all the time and I do. So in my practice, we've always checked thyroid during pregnancy. And so you do see anytime you have wild fluctuations in the reproductive hormones, you're going to see some potential impact on the thyroid function. So just to allow people to understand that thyroid stimulating hormone comes from the same organ in the brain. And I don't know if a, you know, a thyroid endocrinologist could talk more clearly about this, but it makes sense. They're neighbors. They have an impact on each other. And again, these hormones are all talking to each other. So we know when your estrogen and your FSH and LH and your progesterone start to alter, your thyroid can be impacted as well. And we, and they also can, um, cross react with each other. So we know, for instance, women in pregnancy who have hyperemesis, who have much worse problems with the GI function and the nausea and vomiting, we know for a fact that that is actually coming often from the thyroid or from there is an alteration in the thyroid. Like these are people who have a tendency to have hyperthyroid function. So, so there's something going on there. And when you have these fluctuations in the hormones as you're getting into your forties, I've seen the same thing. I personally experienced the same thing. I went from my TSH went up to close to three. So here's the other thing. <laughs> I don't, these reference ranges, I, I don't have to do with these reference ranges. The reference <laughs> ranges for TSH are trash. They're trash. Yeah, they we really know are. clinically yeah. women need to be, and we know for pregnancy and stuff too, and for pregnancy maintenance, your TSH really needs to be in that sweet spot of 1.5 to 2.5, like no higher than 2.5. So I felt like, I felt really bad. I felt really bad. Like my, this is in my forties, probably my mid forties. I'd never had a thyroid problem. There's no thyroid history that we know of in my family. And I just was really sluggish later in the day. I couldn't, you know, my brain wasn't clear. I just felt off. I didn't feel like myself. And my TSH had crept from probably like, you know, mid ones to high twos, close to three. And I mean, I was educated and I brought this, my, my internist at the time, was a really good guy. And he was like, well, if you feel bad and this is what you're telling me, okay, we'll treat it. I mean, this is what happened. So should all of you have to go in and advocate? I hope you might have to, but I don't want you to direct your own care and I don't want you to practice medicine without a license. I mean, there are people like Stephanie and myself who understand these things, but I had to go to him and he, 
he didn't give me a hard time about it. But I don't think he would have treated it had I not said to him, hey, man, you know, I'm, I'm above the sweet spot. So I've been on thyroid medication for probably 10 years. And, um, and so I've seen that and I've seen it over and over with my patients as well. And I know from my integrative medicine and functional medicine training that this is a thing. Do I, do we totally understand it? I, I don't, we don't, but they certainly go hand in hand, right? There's something about the metabolic shift that is going on. And I think you're right. I think my, my observation with perimenopause is that it's a highly inflammatory state. So I mentioned that we experience these wild and unpredictable and increasingly unpredictable fluctuations in our hormones that lead us to that final menopause day, right? But those fluctuations are inflammatory. I mean, to me, what happens is your estrogen levels are fluctuating wildly. Estrogen in a very, in, at a certain level is anti-inflammatory. If it's too high, we know it's pro-inflammatory, right? It can increase your risk for blood clotting specifically. But when you have lower estrogen and estrogen that's all over the place, there is an inflammatory experience that I have seen. I am not a bench scientist. I'm not a research scientist. This is my clinical observation over 26 years. Joint pain, muscle pain, brain fog. Like I said, you see eczema, skin changes, not just dryness, but people get eczema. I have seen people get asthma. These are all inflammatory. All of my patients with actual autoimmune disorders that are already diagnosed, lupus, Sjogren's ends up getting diagnosed around this time, but my lupus patients, my patients with any of the actual autoimmune disorders all have flares. We know for a fact, and this is documented science, we know that when women go through hormonal changes and shifts, they can get flares in their autoimmune disease. This includes MS, multiple sclerosis. So that's inflammation. That's inflammation. And I think the thyroid is being subjected to the same thing. The thyroid is probably being influenced at some level with these fluctuating hormones. And you do see a lot of people present or get diagnosed with either hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's overtly. Not everybody has the antibodies, but I, I tend to agree with you. Like, do we have to see that? I mean, I think that there's sort of a, a burgeoning inflammation that's going on and it affects people. And if people don't understand that this is part of their routine and that they really need to be attending to it, they can really go down a rabbit hole or a pathway where they're getting overtreated in the mental health arena, yes. uh, where their gut health is not being attended to because obviously the central nervous system, the hormones and the gut all interact with each other. I mean, that could be a whole podcast too. We know that hormones are influencing our microbiome and the microbiome are influencing our hormones. So with thyroid and gut, it's actually, I think, a very a much bigger deal than people realize. I know there's a lot of interesting information out there about, for instance, you don't need to be celiac, but gluten intolerance and thyroid right. problems are absolutely linked. Again, it's the, what is the common denominator there? Inflammation. So it all makes sense. I think there's enough data to support at least making sure that's part of your annual visit or your conversation. Yeah, I love that. And I, 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 I like the TSH. And then I would say where you might need to advocate for yourself when you're speaking with a, a P, your PCP is just getting a full picture, a full thyroid. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you can't just do it with TSH. You have to look yeah. at your free T3 and your free T4. You have to. Yes. You have to because your TSH could look okay. Thank you for bringing that up so that I'm more clear. 
But if we don't, the, the functional hormone is T, the T3 to T4 convert, the T4 to T3 conversion. Yeah. So if we don't see those numbers normal, it, it, we're, we're missing the boat. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, we, we've talked on previous podcasts about, you know, the primary site. So thyroid is going to make primarily T4, but then it does, we, we do have this cleaving of the iodine, it, primarily in the liver. It's primarily, then we see some in the, you know, we see some in the cardiac, we see some in the heart, we see some in the muscle, but it's primarily in the liver. So you're, you know, to your point with, with gut health and being able to detoxify properly, this is one of the major roles of the, the many multi, like the multitasking, you know, mother, the liver, you know, one of the things that she does very well, uh, of course, is detoxification. So making sure that those, pro- and you'd mentioned before, you know, different the, yeah, pathways of estrogens, pathways, right? right? Which is also right. going to be concentrated in, well, primarily through conjugation and, and, and hydroxylation, which are the first two phases of, I mix those up, hydroxylation and then conjugation in the liver. And I, I think, you know, most of my, my conventional colleagues just, this is not part of our training. Yes. And yes. so I think rather than point the finger at them, my I'm always advocating for you to advocate for yourselves. But this kind of goes back to something that I, I talked about in the beginning about my own philosophy and my observation of my own way. Coming at them with compassion and curiosity. Yes. If you come with a wagging finger and 14 articles, you know, they're working really, really hard. And they're and humans they really, too. And, and they, humans. exactly. And they yeah. really do want to help you and they're human beings. Yeah. Yeah. But if you say, hey, you know, I was reading about this and I heard that and are you willing to work with me on this? I really think most of the time doctors are going to want to work with you. I've done it with my doctors over the years. I actually had an experience this week, Stephanie, where a very, very well-known diabetes specialist in my community, I'm in LA, was telling our mutual patient that like she couldn't be on hormones. I mean, whatever, which is, ridiculous. It's nonsense. And I was like, oh my God, stop it. I said, listen, why don't you suggest to her that she read my book and read this other book by Dr. Avram Blooming and Carol Travers called Estrogen, Estrogen Matters. Matters, yeah. Yes. And mm-hmm. and she did. And she about faced because I was going to put her patient on hormones anyways. There was no reason mm-hmm. not to. Mm-hmm. And I talked to the patient yesterday and she said, oh my God, she read the book and she thanked me. She wasn't offended. She wasn't good pissed. on her. Yeah. Uh-huh. I love mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Good. I love that. I love that. And that's, so that, you know, that's, that released a little bit of hope molecules in me because, you know, we, <laughs> I, I do, to your point, I do believe that all of your primary healthcare providers, they are, they, they got into that line of work, maybe because their parents wanted them to be in that line of work, or they really wanted to move humanity forward in uh-huh. some way. And I, like you, I have an excellent relationship with my medical doctor with my, you know, with my team. And there's always an open conversation when there's yes. a disagreement or we see dif- we see differently. It's always very, very respectful. And that's something that I think everybody can have. And to your point, if you come in with your finger wagging, it's like, Dr. Stephanie said, you're not going to give me a full thyroid panel. And here you are not giving me a full, that's not going to get you anywhere. They're going to say, who is this person? She's not important. And you're not getting the full thyroid panel. right? So right. I think right. I, I love that question. Are you willing? to work with me on this. I think that that is a wonderful bridge. That is a wonderful bridge question. Let's talk about some of the other changes. I've I, You've wrote about this in, in the menopause bootcamp. You've spoken about it and I'd love for you to talk about it on this show is incontinence. 
other, well, we'll say, we'll say broadly other changes in menopause, but I want to start with incontinence because, you know, you'd mentioned there's, you made a comment earlier around so much shame being kind of wrapped up in a woman's aging body. And I think that this is an area where, you know, you're not going to talk about, you're not going to spill the tea with your friends and say, guess what guys, I went to, you know, the trampoline park with my kids and and I I peed my, you're not going to, you're not going to talk about that. That's going to be something that's completely embarrassing for most women and they're not going to mention it. So can we talk a little bit about maybe the etiology, like what's the mechanistic, like what's the reasoning why that's happening? And then maybe some, like some solutions if, if there are any for how we can, how we can navigate that. Well, there's lots of solutions. I mean, the first solution is to destigmatize it, but you're right. And there's there's sort of like broadly two reasons why we have incontinence or involuntary loss of urine. One is structural. It's it's the the pelvic floor, and I always hold my hands up like a sling, right? So there is a interconnecting network of muscles that literally holds up the bottom of your body. It's in your pelvis. So there's a slings of muscles going from the the bony pelvis. Uh, across to the other side. And through that, we have openings for the urethra, the vagina, and the rectum. Those muscles have to both be strong enough to hold all the organs and supple enough to respond to functional needs. Once we've been alive on the planet and gravity and aging and loss of collagen and loss of elastic, <laughs> loss of strength, right? Yeah. And childbirth for those people who have yeah. had children, yeah. you put stretch and you put tension on those muscles, you damage those muscles. And the thing about the pelvic floor is that most of the people listening may not even know that they had a pelvic floor, let alone how to contact with it and use it. And, you know, so you, you just, it's wear and tear. So the, the organs have changed positions. And it makes it harder to keep the valve closed so that the bladder to the outside world, the urethra, there's actually a shutoff valve there. And if you move past a certain angle, it'll, it won't close, it'll release and you'll, you know, leak urine. So that's what we call stress incontinence. So that's the structural part. The other part is hormone changes. So as I mentioned, the estrogen specifically, receptors are in every part of our body. And famously in our you know, mucosa, the lining of our mouths, which is why some people get dry mouths, by the way, uh, our eyes, dry eyes, the vaginal canal, the urethra. So there's something called genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And that is where the tissues in the genital and the urinary tract are impacted by loss of estrogen. What happens is that you're, you get thinning of the tissue, you have less collagen and elastin, which are very important for bounciness essentially for ability to stretch and move and respond. And also you can get more breakage of the tissue. You're going to be more susceptible to uh, fissures in the tissue, which will allow bacteria to enter. You get irritation, pain, inflammation that feels like an infection, but is really just inflammation in the urethra and in the the, uh, vagina. And that tissue change also can contribute to incontinence. So there's also another thing called urge incontinence, which is more the bladder itself, uh, instability in the muscle, but also the tissue changes can really contribute. So people tend to have these problems and they're like, I'm just going to hide it. And then they get older and it's getting worse. It's not getting addressed. And now you have the estrogen impact. You have the actual GSM coming in and it just, it's off to the races. That's why the incontinence pad, you know, industry is a billion dollar industry. 
And I'm not saying that you shouldn't use a pad if you need it. And I'm not mad at, you know, the people who make the pads, but I think we can do better for women. There's all this data out there that it takes like six to seven years at least for people to bring this up in a doctor's office. So, you know, God, those of us who work seven years. And sometimes they never bring it up. There's a large, a large number of women that never bring these problems up. They do, as you mentioned earlier, think of it as just like a problem of aging. They often get told by their practitioners, you know, you're getting older. That's just part of it as if there's nothing you can do. And that is really just patently false. So here's where a combination of both understanding your pelvic floor, learning to work that musculature. There are amazing people called pelvic floor physical therapists out there. They are trained to help you strengthen that 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 area of your body. But also you don't want to be too tight because you can have pain. If the muscle t- just, you know, look, if you held that bicep continually, you would have muscle fatigue and pain. So you can be too tight. It's very important. This is why it's important to work with, with somebody if you can. There are a lot of devices out there that can help people um, understand their muscle strength, learn how to train themselves, learn how to relax. So that part's really important. But then also this is where menopausal hormone therapy in the vaginal area. So these are areas generally that we're treating locally. We're treating the tissue to replenish the loss of that estrogen to help replenish the changes in the tissue help to rebuild collagen and elastin and create less inflammation, less opportunity for pain, discomfort, and infections. They're not going to be absorbed into the rest of your body, Stephanie. So they're not usually treatments for the other menopausal symptoms. They're safe for everybody. I think it's there's so much fear around hormone use in general, which is a whole story to unpack. But the reality is it's not evidence-based. I'm a breast cancer survivor. I use vaginal estrogen. There is, and there's even now another study that came out. It is absolutely not evidence based to deny breast cancer survivors, even who have had estrogen and progesterone receptor positive cancers, even those of us who are on hormone blockers, you can safely use vaginal estrogen. And it is a matter because of because it's not systemic, because it's a it's local not systemically absorbed. Yeah. 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 And it's it's a quality of life issue and it's a health issue. You know, as we get into our older years, older women can get a bladder infection and die. They can get a kidney infection and get septic. I'm not trying to scare people. But like this is not benign and not treating it and coming from a place of fear about bodily changes and allowing our healthcare providers to also respond from a place of fear is actually damaging to our health. So these are not like funny or cute memes. These are serious things. And, and incontinence is really disabling for people, really disabling. I, um, if I could make a recommendation, and this is just something that I would do, is like look, Google online the pelvic floor, like, mm-hmm. or just like, you know, I have my netters book from, from school. <laughs> I still have my netters anatomy, which, you know, it's like the, it's that sling that you were talking about from yeah. the pubic bone to the coccyx. And then there's, as you were mentioning, I actually love the way you described it. You want it to be supple enough to be able to respond to whether it's, you know, urinating or going to the bathroom or, you know, birthing a child or, you know, penetrative sex. And also we want it to be tight enough, as you were mentioning, or strong enough to have the to have the resilience, let's say, to hold in all of our organs. I just love right. that. I love that picture. So it's almost like the Goldilocks, so not too tight, not too loose, right. just right. So I would say if you want to, if somebody is listening to this and saying, oh yeah, there may be like, just learn, like, just take look at a picture. Even better, maybe a hand mirror. I think, you know, I had this conversation with Jolene Brighton. She was on the show and we were talking about how women don't even know what they look like. 
It's like, absolutely. Take a hand mirror, get to know yourself. Like just go in the bathroom, you know, lock it if you have kids and then just take, you know, take a little, take a little glance down there. See what's going on. If you're, if you're doing that, what you can do is visualize and sort of see if you can um, imagine like an elevator rising up from your, from your bottom to your belly button and see if you see any movement. Oh, that's because cool. if you do, yeah. you're that's and that's essentially what a kegel is, right? Yeah, a kegel yeah. is one way to do this, right? But if you see some movement, like okay, you just made that mind. This is a really good example of mind body connection because we're not taught about how to use that particular muscle. We're doing it unconsciously all the time. I mean, when we potty train small children, we're actually teaching them how to use their pelvic floor. We just didn't think about it that way. Mm-hmm. So. And if you don't, don't get upset. Don't feel ashamed. Be like, oh, okay, well, how can I learn more about that? You know, I love yeah. that. I, yeah. And it's just like, you know, when you're trapped, like we were just traveling recently and I had to go to the bathroom. It's like holding, you know, sort of holding it in, let's say that's also using some of those muscles yep. in, in that, in that perineum or in the, in that, in that sling, we'll say. Okay. Love that. One of the things that I probably most people come to me for is weight loss resistance or some of the metabolic changes that happen. Weight redistribution, we'll say again, under the influence of estrogen. Can you speak a little bit about, do do you have women that are coming into your practice that are talking about this? Yes. All day, every day, all day, every day. And this has really been a really interesting experience for me because you know, it's been a struggle for me also. And I mean, obviously this is like your area of expertise, but here's the thing. I think the gaslighting about, like, I think there've been some really big studies that have come out in the last couple of years that I've seen really promoted online. Like, see, it's not really happening. The data doesn't show that women gain weight any more than men. And I feel like that's really gaslighting. I mean, we have hormonal Ask any perimenopausal woman it's absurd. if that's true. It's just absurd. Come it's absurd. On. Yeah. It's absurd. It's usually it's the just, gym bros. I'm just going to say it. It's usually the gym bros that have huge followings that talk about this. Yeah, a lot of them are yeah. doctors. And I'm like, you know yeah. what? Do better, sir and madam. Because yeah. I've seen women <laughs> doing this too. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, I don't really know what planet you're on. Because there's reams of data on the fact that Weight may not change, although it usually does, but weight distribution changes. And here's the problem. Of course, it's belly fat and visceral fat, which is mm-hmm. dangerous for us. Yes. It's yes. dangerous for us. It is, you can't, and you can't, it's true that your lifestyle can't spot treat subcutaneous belly fat, but it is not true that lifestyle cannot treat. I mean, stop doing all the negatives. It is true that lifestyle can treat visceral fat. And that is what we want to lose. So look, do I want to look a certain way? I do. I really do. But I'm at this point a lot more concerned with my health. So here's, I had gestational diabetes. I am an Ashkenazi Jew. There's a lot of diabetes in our, it turns out genetically, and there's probably some epigenetic influences there too, trauma and other things, right? But I know that that is something that I need to be concerned about. And so, by the way, I'm bringing this up because if any of your listeners were pregnant and had gestational diabetes or preeclampsia, hypertension during pregnancy, Mm -hmm. when you hit menopause and perimenopause, please don't let people dismiss you because your risk of diabetes, insulin resistance, and hypertension and cardiovascular disease, which as we know is the number one killer of women, skyrockets. Your cholesterol skyrockets. Your hemoglobin A1C can skyrocket. Your inflammatory markers may look normal, but you're developing visceral fat, which is just an inflammation factory. So that that can be managed with heavy lifting, increasing protein, increasing fiber, 
I'm not a fan of restriction diet culture. I have my own disordered eating history. I'm super honest with this about people. Like I really get my patients because I am one of them. Yeah. And I have had my own struggles with body image and all this kind of stuff. And my, again, as I, I'm repeating myself, I mean, I really want us to focus on loving ourselves enough to be healthy and look at the health implications. But I think when we make it really binary, Stephanie, like, oh, health at any size is over here and, you know, skinny is over there. Like, it, no, 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 no. That's not actually how this works. There are some actual metabolic changes that are occurring in women under the influence of the changes of our hormones. The other thing to understand about this is that you can do things, you can change things, and you can focus on health without getting crazy and just going into eating disorder land, which isn't going to help you. Because as we all know, there are also, if you look at like some of these interesting studies where they can do uh, CT scans and MRIs where they're showing the fat, distribution, you could have a skinny person with a, a shit ton, excuse my French, of abdominal fat, visceral fat. And these people are not, they may be fitting into their size zero genes, but they're actually not healthy. Those are, so, what are they, tofies, I think they're called, thin on the outside, T-O-F-I, so thin outside, but fat on the inside. And when we yeah. say fat, we're saying visceral fat. Yeah, yeah, visceral yeah. fat. So, yeah. so it, there has to be a balance between self-love and acceptance and, you know, being real about what are the health concerns. I think the there was one more thing that, of course, my brain fog is preventing me from remembering. So, oh, so again, to the evolutionary biology people, there is some thinking that the belly fat that we develop, we, we do more conversion of estrogens in that fat. So remember I talked about the ovary is really the source of estrogen for us. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that you do have adrenal hormones so the adrenals are the cute little guys that are your girls, whatever you want to call them, sitting on top of your kidneys. And you make um, a precursor hormone there called DHEA, which can be routed by aromatase, an enzyme, either to testosterone or estrogen. And actually, the fat that we make in our belly can be routed toward making some estrogen. Now, the thing is that this estrogen is not necessarily the most beneficial kind of estrogen, but it is estrogen. And I, I feel like it's our body trying to help us. So sometimes when I tell people that I'm like, look, your body's trying to help you. So like, understand that, you know, when we get into like this war with our body, it's just never good. Like you're not going to win. And, and I don't think it's, it's helpful or helpful, but there is maybe a reason why your body's trying to do that. It's trying to preserve your brain. It's trying to preserve your bones. It's trying to preserve your heart. You know, it's, it's trying to give you a little bit of estrogen to get you through the next big chunk of your life. Hey, Bettys, I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break, so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Foot mechanics affect every aspect of your fitness and your movement patterning. When we are wearing shoes with a built-in arch support, lots of cushioning, we are affecting the mechanics of the entire lower limb and spine. These types of shoes will shorten the Achilles tendon, they will limit ankle dorsiflexion, they cause more arch collapse, they limit toe flexion and abduction, which causes bunions, they affect your ability to squat properly, and your ankle and knees have to take up the slack of a foot that isn't moving the way it should. I have recently swapped my running shoes and have been wearing Paluva shoes as my day shoe, still training barefoot, and I've loved it. Paluva helps to restore foot mechanics, giving your feet the room to move, which improves posture, your gait, your natural body movement, and for me, it's helping my squat. 
Go to paluva.com forward slash Dr. Stephanie to get 10% off of your entire order. That's P-E-L-U-V-A.com forward slash D-R-S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E to save 10%. I really like that reframe. I think that it reframes fat in general, you know, so whether that's subcutaneous, visceral fat, it's, it's the, you know, I've spoken to individuals who talk about this with the same, you know, with Alzheimer's disease, when we see some of these beta amyloid plaques, so Dr. Dale Bredesen will say, you know, these tau tangles and these beta amyloid plaques, we used to look at them as this thing that needed to be removed and they're evil, but it's actually the brain's protective mechanism from a variety of insults, right? I've heard researchers talk of the same sort of thinking, line of thinking around cancer, that cancer mm-hmm. is the body's response. Now, I'm no endocrine, you know, I'm not an oncologist. I wouldn't know enough to intelligently speak about that. But some conversations that I've been privy to talking about this idea that cancer is also a response to uh, a variety of environmental, uh, you know, and uh, exogenous insults. And that's the, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bizarre, you know, of course you think about it, you're like, why would your body do that to yourself? But there, it is a self-preservation mechanism, yeah. the same as a, a, yeah. an amyloid plaque might be. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned, I, I just wanted to, um, talk about cardiovascular disease for a moment. Uh, and I'm so glad that you brought up that you are a, a breast cancer survivor. I actually pulled some stats, um, in, in prep for our, our conversation, but knowing, knowing your history a little bit, cause you've spoken about it online. Cardiovascular disease is, as you said, the number one killer of women full stop. Like it yeah. kills more women than the next 16 causes of death. And that includes all cancers, AIDS, mm-hmm. uh, AIDS, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome and motor vehicle accidents. Wow. It's, it is the number one killer. And then I also, if you can just allow me to nerd out for a moment, the risk of developing cardiovascular disease versus the risk of developing breast cancer. So women have a one in eight risk. So about 12%, if you divide one into eight, it's about 12% risk of getting breast cancer. For cardiovascular disease, it's more than one in two. It's yeah. 56%. Yeah, yeah. Most breast cancer survivors are going to die of heart disease. Right. Okay. Next point. I just just want to throw this in here just to make sure we have this in the ledger. One, the risk of dying, lifetime risk of dying from breast cancer, one in 38. So 2.6%. Want risk of dying of heart disease, one in four. So it's like there's the 25%. So there's like 2.6 to 25, like it's a 10x difference there. Mm-hmm. So as you said, women who've had breast cancer, they're most likely going to have, they're most likely going to die from cardiovascular disease. Yep. I think that that is an important consideration when we think as we start navigating, I want to talk a little bit about hormone replacement therapy because that's the number one. We did a, I did a whole, I don't want to call it debunking, but kind of debunking of the Women's Health Initiative oh, in terms yeah. of- the you know just the, the research the qual the subjects the interventions the right which has made women petrified and yeah. still to this day many primary yeah. healthcare providers petrified of giving yeah. their patients hormone replacement therapy so with your if i can i don't want to rapid fire but let let's let's talk a little bit about hrt and let's and i know you've talked about the the difference i'm using air quotes for those of you that are listening between bioidenticals and hormone replacement therapy. I'll first just ask, is HRT a breast cancer risk? Can we unpack that question a little bit? I really don't think the evidence supports that. I mean, I think I think 
there, there are two issues here. Even if you look at the Women's Health Initiative, which is what you're talking about, this huge study, billion dollar study that was a debacle. And that, that wasn't really even looking at women in the transitional zone. It was women looking at women far older. The average age was like 62, right. 63. These are people who already had heart disease or breast cancer because your age, your, your risk of breast cancer is increased. Yes, there's a one in eight risk, but that's not like across your lifetime. That's like, you know, lifetime risk and that the risk of breast cancer increases every year you're alive. And it's mostly in women who are older. So. Even in that study, even looking at hormones that I, a lot of us don't even use anymore, two things about breast cancer. The women who did not need to use progestin to protect their uterus because they'd had a hysterectomy had lower rates of breast cancer, lower rates of breast cancer. Okay, so you explained to me how estrogen is causing breast cancer. It's not. There are receptors in the cancer. That doesn't mean that thing that there's a receptor for cause the cancer. There are estrogen receptors in brain cancer. I don't hear anybody screaming about menopausal hormone therapy and brain cancer. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, the the breast cancer risk in the people who were on hormones was less than one per 10,000. It's just, it's a minuscule, it's not a clinically significant number of people or, you know, it's just like, so this is what I tell my patients. So that's number, that's, that's a big picture looking at an older study, but a very large study. When you look at bioidentical hormones, body identical, these are hormones that are biologically identical, chemically speaking to what our bodies are making right now when they're making them. They are, by the way, FDA approved and commercially available. You do not have to get bioidentical hormones from a compounding pharmacy. They do not have to be extra super expensive and fancy. I mean, maybe you need them that way for various reasons, but you can get FDA approved hormone therapy that is regulated, okay, and cheap for a lot of us. Um, we don't have the same kind of large scale studies on those medications, so we can't speak to it the same way, but there's just no evidence to support that people on hormone therapy are getting breast cancer at higher rates. It's just not accurate. And what I tell my patients is, you're walking into my office today at 42, 52, to whatever it is, with whatever your risk of breast cancer is. Some of this is knowable. Some of it is not knowable. Most breast cancers at this point are not based in genetics, okay? There's about 10% of us that have had breast cancers that are from known genetic variants. But 90% of people who get breast cancer, it's spontaneous as far as we know. So you're going to come in with whatever your history is, whatever your risk is, and we're going to give you the hormones and you're still going to have that risk. So if you have a family history of breast cancer that is genetic or not, your risk is a little bit higher. It is. But giving you hormone therapy isn't going to change that risk. I'm going off on it because I really want people from so many points of view to understand what I'm trying to say. I'm not here to sell hormone therapy to everybody. It really can be beneficial to a lot of us and a lot more people than I think, as you've mentioned, realize but I, I want them to know that it, they shouldn't be not selecting hormone therapy based in fear that is not scientifically proven. It's not evidence-based. It's a fear-based decision. And they're, and they're potentially harming their health, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you've, we've already talked about vaginal or topical estrogen, let's say, has not been exactly. linked to any increase of any breast no. cancer in no. the short or long term. No. So you're taking it for a year, you're taking it for 10 years, there's no change. Let, okay, so when should a woman start considering 
breast cancer. So or breast cancer, what do I say? When should a woman consider hormone replacement therapy? I'm sorry, I had a little maybe a Freudian slip there. We know <laughs> we know that HRT is is recommended for women with the genitourinary symptoms that we were discussing. We haven't talked about hot flashes yet, but sometimes hot, like vasomotor symptoms. Yes. You know, maybe they've done a bone density scan and we're seeing some osteopenia or there's some right. fear around osteoporosis. So these are sort of like the, you know, tried, tested and true sort of yes. on label, if you will, reasons why a woman might consider. So is there, my question here is sort of two part. When should she start considering it? And the second part of it is, are there any, we'll say off-label considerations other than those things that I've, that I've outlined that a woman might say, Hey, maybe I, I can, maybe I would benefit from some estrogen or some estrogen and progesterone combination. Right. Great questions. I, I, I tell, I tell people that they should at least be coming in and having a conversation as soon as they're starting to notice disruption. In fact, maybe even before then, I'd love for people to be educated. So you know, having a podcast like this where people can understand well in advance what they might be facing so that they have sort of a game plan, which, you know, is a flexible game plan. But sure. even just yeah. knowing that there's there are solutions and they don't need to be suffering. So, you know, I, I really... I, I really want people to come in and have a, con- I have people come in now all the time, just having a conversation, not having enough of a problem to even get a prescription. They just want to know like, okay, this, this, and this I'm noticing. My cycles are changing. My PMS is, is getting worse. I'm fine with it. I'm handling it. I'm meditating more. I'm taking herbs, whatever. Or I'm, you know, they're going to do acupuncture, Chinese medicine. That I think it's great to talk then at a minimum. Once people are disrupted, their sleep is disrupted, their mood is disrupted, their relationships are disrupted, their work is being impacted, they feel bad in their body. That is the time to come in and have the conversation because we don't want it to get so far afield that now they really have had a lot of negative consequences because I have people who have lost jobs, lost relationships, gotten sick because they did not understand that they were in perimenopause and that they there were supported resources available to them. I don't want that to happen to people anymore. Maybe you're going to come in and have a conversation and you're not going to start hormones, but you're going to, again, be coming back in eight weeks or three months or six months and we're going to revisit it. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm very like permissive about stuff. It is not an emergency. I tell people all the time, this is not an emergency. Let's have the conversation. And can I tell you how often people call two days later and say, you know how I didn't want to start hormones. I want to start hormones. Happens a lot. Yeah. So I, I think people need to be on their own timetable, but know what the resources are and hormones should be part of that toolkit. That's sort of the generic when. I think the off-label stuff, brain fog, cognitive changes. By the way, you're not, you guys are all not going to have dementia. Okay. This is a well-documented fact but that we have changes in cognition, short-term memory, word finding. I do it. I did it during the podcast. <laughs> you know, that's a big one. Sleep is a huge one, a yes. huge one. And because I tell people all the time that we need to work on the sleep first, because if we don't fix the sleep, nothing good is happening. Joint pain and muscle pain. I mean, look, I can tell you I'm on hormones. That's a whole controversial. I am a breast cancer survivor on hormones. I'm 10 years. I'm okay. I, maybe I should, I, I'm just saying that now. And I work out hard, although I've backed it up, right? Cause I'm almost 58. Can I tell you how sore I was last night? So sore. I mean, my recovery is really different, even on hormones as a 58-year-old. Hmm. So so I, I some of that, that frozen shoulder, oh my God, 
that's like a classic perimenopause oh. and menopause sign. Yeah. Um, I, can I tell you that hormone therapy is going to fix it? No. Would it mitigate it? Probably. I think these are the big ones that, that people may not totally be aware of. I, I think I mentioned a little bit just overall dryness, dry mouth, dry eyes, not just dry vagina, but all the mucous membranes. So again, these are off-label uses. I wouldn't, if that's the only complaint you came to me with, I wouldn't necessarily be like, hey, hormones, but I would discuss it in a larger context. I think the family history thing, and I think especially for women with Alzheimer's dementia in the family, listen, I know Dr. Moscone is not willing to pull the trigger. She's a neuroscientist. She's not a clinician, okay? She works and lives amongst clinicians, but she's very, very careful about her research as she should be. I think there's so much robust data indicating that the issue for the development of dementia, Alzheimer's specifically in women, is something to do with actually the perimenopausal fluctuations. It's, look, yes. it's looking like her her data in particular is noting like that's where the development happens. That makes me feel like if you have a lot of women in your family with Alzheimer's, you know, I think it's not a bad idea to start hormone therapy. I really do. The menopause society will not support that at this point. But I absolutely will have the conversation with people. I think it's really important. It is the thing that scares my patients more than anything. I think that's the scariest disease. Yep. I would take, I would take any other, if I had to choose a, a, if there was like 10 diseases in front of me, that would be the last one that I would choose. Can you, yep. I mean, it's just the scariest, like you have no memory of your life. Yep. Everything is erased. You don't know your husband, just... Gosh, I, I mean, yeah, I, for me, that is something that is, I mean, I'm always very, I've always been fascinated just my entire career with brain yeah. metabolism and, you know, the, the, the changing, or let's say the arc uh, of change of, of, of brains over, over, over the lifespan. And that would be just, I mean, I, 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 I remember my great aunt, she had Alzheimer's and she didn't remember mm. anybody except my dad. And she had yeah. no idea who any, didn't know her sisters, my, didn't know my grandmother, didn't know, didn't know anyone. And it was so, oh man. So, so I know anybody who's dealing with any type of dementia, but particularly Alzheimer's disease is, it's a devastating disease, truly. Oh yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about TRT. This is, this is, this, if there's one hormone therapy, I mean, HRT, you know, when we talk about estrogen and progesterone, right. that's enough controversy, but there is right. something about TRT that invokes madness in people. <laughs> and so, yeah. and I don't yeah. know, you know, people, and I sort of often make the joke, you know, if, if a man sort of complains about low libido, you know, before he even has the sentence out, he has a script in his hand, the doctor has yeah. already filled it for him. You know, it's, it's like- FDA approved in this country. We don't have FDA approval for testosterone in women. Yeah. Wait, what in the hell? What in the hell? Okay, so can we talk about, because we, and I'll, I think from my understanding of TRT, it's like if you are, or the, the, the time in which we can even consider it is if a woman is already taking estrogen therapy and then she's still complaining about a low right. sex drive, no other, you know, it's idiopathic, there's no other identifiable causes why that might be happening, then you might have the TRT conversation. But, but nothing else, no depression, no fatigue. You know, one of the things that many women will have reported to me over the years moving through menopause, perimenopause and, and menopause is this, uh, they almost feel like their personality changes, at least mm -hmm. temporarily, like mm -hmm. the confidence with which they speak. You know, you mentioned like constant confusion, word retrieval, 
people who would go into a boardroom and own it, women who would walk in and own it and make the decision all of a sudden feel not themselves, anxiety, ripe with anxiety that also seems to pop out out of nowhere. And, you know, you mentioned estrogen receptors everywhere in the body and testosterone, you know, like the the brother to estrogen, same yeah. kind of thing, right? There's right. there's receptors everywhere in the brain as well. Yeah. What What are your thoughts on TRT on label use? Do is there off label? Is there a p- time and place for TRT for yeah. women? What do you think? I about think that? I think most of us who who work in the menopause space are prescribing testosterone, and it's an off label prescription. But um, I think I I guess my my thing with testosterone is um, it's very frustrating to me how little data we have on it, and I think yeah. that's one of the biggest problems. And I think. Yeah. What happens when you have that vacuum is you have people who are really overselling and predatory around it and making it like, you know, it's like if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything works like a nail. Right. And then you have people overprescribing and it's kind of like the cocaine of hormones, right? So like if you do a lot of cocaine, you are going to feel amazing. You're going to crash and you're going to be a crazy person. But you're going to feel great, even just like steroids. Like if you've ever had, I <laughs> I never had a prednisone pack in my life until I had the worst sinus infection in my life about eight months ago. I swear to God, I was like, holy shit, I'm in the disco in 1982 right now. I, I was like, <laughs> but you can't take that shit all the time. It is not good for you, right? I was yeah. like, well, if I could do steroids every day. Okay, no, you can't yeah. do that. Yeah. So it was a really interesting experience. So I see a lot of people coming in with overdosing on testosterone and they feel amazing initially and they really want more and more. And then they start having all these side effects, hair growth, hair loss, bleeding, all sorts of craziness. So we don't, we, because of the vacuum in terms of research, and I think, again, this is just like this weird patriarchal misogyny blind spot. We don't really know what to do with it all the time. Something that you're your listeners may or may not know, they probably do because you're smart and you probably told them this already, but we have more testosterone than estrogen in our bodies when we're young. Okay, I'm going to say that again. We don't have more testosterone than men, but women have their most abundant hormone in their youthful years is testosterone. So you can't tell me that the decline in testosterone doesn't affect us. The, the thing is the data is strongest in libido. And I think that's kind of a problem, to be honest with you, Stephanie, because I definitely will use it for libido in my patients because it's indicated. But the thing is, libido is complicated and it's not an on-off switch. And so if you're looking for, you know, the magic pill, the silver bullet with testosterone, and you're not looking at your relationship, your relationship to yourself, to your body, your own changing sexuality, your own needs, pleasure... I can give you as much testosterone as you want, and I'm not going to fix your sex life. Sex life is a lot more complicated than that. And I'm here to tell you, by the way, TMI, I'm having some of the best sex of my life because I'm in a relationship with a person who communicates, who I communicate with, and we love each other. Okay? So I found a good match at this point in my life. So it's not, it's just not true that you can't have good sex or that you can't have a libido and desire. But it's also not all testosterone. So testosterone may support that in a resourced relationship with yourself. Okay. I, I would love to see more data on muscle mass, bone health. There is some interesting data on bone health and testosterone. I think it's pretty convincing in brain health, in brain function. I mean, I, I just, I'm kind of at a loss because I don't have a lot of data. So I, I can, I use it clinically. This is where I do go to my compounding pharmacies because I can use 
a, the male, the female dose is one tenth of the male dose. Okay. So I can take like a teeny bit, teeny bit of injectable. Who's doing that? Or the tested, the, the gel, which is not always easy to get. And it can be expensive in the United States. And you have to like take it out of the tube and put it in the, isn't that big of a deal. Um, but that is a way you can do it. But I end up just usually going to the compound pharmacies because I'll, t- I'll have them tailor it to my patients. And I, I'm, I'm not afraid to say that I work with compounding pharmacists. These are people who are professionals, who are very well trained, who care very much about people's health. Every compounding pharmacy is an evil and unregulated and terrible. And I think when my colleagues who really are like by the book about everything close down any other conversation, it makes me sad because that's just yeah. ridiculous. The world isn't that small. So I, I think I'd like to see more data. I don't know when that's forthcoming. I don't know what the, the motivation would be around that. And I, I, but I use it. I, I think there's a lot of promise. I do think you're right. I think that's probably the next wave in hormone use in, in a, in a broader sense, because there are definitely a lot of people who are using it, but it's not being touted or used broadly at this point, you know? Yeah. And I, and I think for, you know, to your point, I think that there are some, there is a conversation that it's not necessary for women only when it's libido, only when it's, and only when there's no other indicated. Uh, I disagree. I, I, just I, don't, I, I, disagree I disagree as well. Yeah. 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 And I, I love that you said the testosterone is the most abundant sex hormone in the female body because it is, yeah. as you said, we don't have more than men, but it is, we have much more testosterone than we do um, estrogen. Yeah. Yeah. And your context around libido, I think, is also well taken in terms of I was I was reading something actually this morning, and this is a this is just a philo- a personal philosophy that I have with my relationship with my husband. And it's this framework that I completely reject this idea that the longer that you're with someone, that it's, you know, it goes from lust, you know, you're just lusty and like just all, you know, it's just like fabulous, like mind blowing sex. And then it sort of peters off. Eventually you're just roommates and you don't even recognize each other and you sort of see each other, you know, passing in the hallway in the morning, getting your coffee. And so I I was reading this morning, this idea that, you know, yes, there is that lust, there is that sort of, and there's, you know, some evolutionary biology in terms of the dopamine and all the things in terms of why that lust and that sort of uh, insatiable love happens in the beginning. But if you are thoughtful about it in the way that I think you have been in your relationship, that lust can turn into sacred love where you want to heal together. There is a sacred container between you and your partner um, where you can go deeper on many of the, uh, you know, what, you know, core values and, and points of interest that are, that are, that are shared between the two of you. And I think that that, that sacred union, maybe um, if that, you know, if that's a word, you know, you can, you sort of go from lust to this like sacred love and the sacred union that only gets better with time. And I've talked a little bit about this. I haven't talked too much about it, but I love this idea of this legendary love, like this love that just grows and grows and grows with time and it gets deeper and more intricate and more wholesome rather than just sort of fizzing out. Yeah. But it takes work. And I think that people yes, are yes. both exhausted and burnt out. And they, again, yeah. if we don't educate people on, on their bodies, on intimacy, on sexual intimacy, on changes, on growth, then I don't understand how we're expecting people to continue to enjoy that aspect of their life. If most of what they're being sold, and I do mean sold, is that initial kind of pink cloud, 
lust stuff, which is great. Who doesn't love that? That's fun. But then they don't know how to go beyond it. And, you know, one of the things that I do talk about with my, in my practice, and I think, you know, a great sex therapist can be really helpful in this way is how to reestablish that, that intimacy, how to, how to reintroduce dopamine, you know, that this idea of like scheduled sex, for instance, for a busy couple that, you know, is running a household and working and maybe they have kids, all this stuff, you know, or maybe the kids are gone and they're like, oh my God, we've been like, you know, co-managing the corporation that is our family. Like, how do we reestablish that? You know, it, actually scheduling sex increases dopamine release because you're looking forward to something. You got and something I, to look forward to. Yeah, you, you got date yeah. night on the calendar. Exactly. Absolutely. So there's yeah. lots of little things you can do that help it, but you have to be willing to help it in this idea. I'll tell, the other thing that people get really stuck on is this idea of spontaneous desire, hmm. which is mythical. And to some extent, and also not distinctly female. Now, all men and all women are not the same. Okay. I, I don't want to get into whole, all the gender stuff, but just like physiologically, in general, female body people have more responsive desire. So if, and I have so much grief walking into my office about like, I just don't want to have sex. And there's, they think they're supposed to be a 13 year old boy. Right. It's like, what? Well, you're not, but you're not a 13 year old boy. You're yeah. a 56 year old woman. Who's been married to the same guy since you were, you know, for 30 years. So you, you, responsiveness, talking to that person, talking to that person, partner, male, female, whatever it is. So, and some of this stuff is hard. You have to be vulnerable, but you know, that's how you grow. You got to take the thorns. You have to unwrap the thorns around your heart and let, <laughs> let that person. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love, I love this conversation. If if people are wanting to, you know, you've mentioned in your practice, if people are are wanting to work with you in any capacity, whether it's you know in your private practice, it's your book. Tell people where can they find you? Where are some other resources that we can direct them to? Well, I mean, I'm all over the socials. I'm most active on Instagram, so I'm, I know you guys are going to post that. And I, and the book, I think is a great place to sort of educate yourself, but also kind of get a flavor for my philosophy and who I am. I do telemedicine. And if people go to my website, there is a link to how to do that with me. And I think the other thing is that for people who are interested in growing their communities or people who are, have practices, you know, whether they're dietitians, nutritionists, health coaches, fitness coaches, healthcare providers, Another way to grow your practice and serve your community and build community and frankly, build your clientele is to do my certification program. So, you know, I started doing these boot camps to help educate people. What I found very quickly is that I was actually creating community. It's funny to me that I didn't understand that. And including for myself, this is, so I wrote the book based on that. That's the I've feminine, that's the feminine creating mm-hmm. the communal Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it was so beautiful and it's yeah. been, it's just widened and widened and widened and developed. I always knew Stephanie that there was no way that I could physically, nor would it be appropriate for me to go into every community and do these boot camps. I mean, I don't think we need another white lady, frankly, going into every community in the world. It's not, doesn't make sense. And this is not a how to treat menopause. This is how to understand menopause, how to approach menopause, how to resource menopause how to support each other, how to create ongoing community. So now I have a program where you can certify in my method and you can create menopause boot camps in your own community. I'm super excited about that. They're on sale. I think we should maybe make a discount code for your people. I'd love to do that. And that's another way to sort of create an opportunity for yourself individually and for the people around you and give back. I feel very strongly about my purpose in life is to 
be an educator and a supporter and a cheerleader and now a wise woman. You know, I'm really stepping into it. So thank you for letting me be here to do that. You know, you are really so appreciate it. Oh, it's been just my honor. And I love, uh, I love that wise woman. I, I sometimes will speak to my inner child, like baby Steffi, who's scared and just wants to feel safe. And then I also speak to, you know, my older, you know, grandma, Stephanie, who, the, and I sort of envision her with long white hair and a big moo-moo and you know, like a big crystal, you know, something that's sort of the, the woman that I sort of envision that I'm, you know, moving towards. And I just love that uh, you, you made that reference. That's, that's, really great. Okay. So we'll have all of those links for people in the show notes. You know, we'll figure out discount codes and that'll also be in the show notes there as well for the menopause bootcamp certification. Just a pleasure, Doc. Thank you so much for your time, your presence today. And I know that this is going to serve, this is going to be so valuable to my community because these are some of the, some of the questions that we get all the time. Is HRT safe? Am I going to get, you know, all, all the things that we've talked about. So thank you so much for your, for your wisdom, for your lived experience, your clinical experience and your expertise here. Oh my gosh. Thank you for your time. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only and the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 